And I just remember, you know, I was sort of lying in the ocean, bobbing up and down, you know, looking at the palm trees. And I was just thinking, how can I get back here? What can I do to get back here? Could I write a guide to this place? Does this place need another guide? And ultimately, when I looked at what was out there and started thinking about it, I said, you know what, I'm going to give it a shot. The Extra Pack of Peanuts Travel Podcast, episode 357. We all know that Maine is popular for lobster, but did you know that 90% of the U.S.'s entire lobster supply comes from that small state up north? My question, where does the other 10% come from? One of the things that I love about watching the Tortuga Backpack brand grow over the last five to six years is that they were one of the first brands that really focused on building a bag specifically for travelers. And what I mean by that is when I first started traveling, first started backpacking, there were not many companies out there that focused on travelers. All the backpacks were focused on hiking and camping and things like that, which is great if you're hiking and camping and doing things like that, but not so great if you're looking just to travel around. And so when Tortuga Backpacks came out, I was absolutely thrilled because they made a pack that was built for travelers, one that was not top-loading, you know, that you had to shove all your stuff in, and then when you had to get something at the bottom, you had to take every single thing out. They did not make bags like that. They decided that they were going to make bags for this crazy huge subset of people, travelers, but not travelers who were specifically going camping, hiking, and things like that. So super excited that Tortuga Backpacks came out with their version one way back when, when I was a newbie traveler, and I'm so excited that I've been able to use them throughout my entire travels over the last four or five years. The only backpack that I have used, Tortuga Backpack. So if you're looking for the best travel carry-on size backpack out there and you're not camping or hiking and doing that type of activity, you're just going to go out and travel, check them out, tortugabackpacks.com. Don't forget to use the promo code EPOP, that's E-P-O-P, all capital letters. That'll get you 10% off your entire order. And don't forget, if you're about saving money on travel, And you are about saving money on travel, right? Right? Make sure you check out our app, Jetto, J-E-T-T-O. You can find it on any of the app stores. Totally free to download. It is going to help you find the cheapest flights out there. We just had some amazing deals to some great places. We're talking French Polynesia. We're talking Vanuatu. We're talking Tahiti. Some really, really cool exotic remote locations for under 600 bucks, under 500 bucks. Crazy, crazy deals have been coming out. So check it out. Go download it on the App Store, J-E-T-T-O. Check it out. Download it for free and you'll be getting cheap flights to your phone in no time. Hello, travel nerds, and welcome to the Extra Pack of Peanuts Travel Podcast, the show that teaches you how to travel more while spending less. I'm your host, Travis Sherry, and joining me today is someone whose work has graced the cover of National Geographic, who has sold over 150,000 copies of his guidebooks, and who claims to have the best job in the world. I might have something to say about that, though. Uh, James Kaiser, award-winning travel writer and photographer from jameskaiser.com. James, thanks for joining me, and welcome. Uh, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. And I just learned right before we hopped on and started recording here that James is down in Colombia. So I got to pick his brain a little bit about Colombia. So you're there in Bogota. Give us your uh, rough itinerary. How long do you usually stay down there in Colombia? Escape the winters. Is that typical for you for a year? Yeah, pretty much. So my wife is Colombian. And, uh, you know, we really like sort of splitting our time between the U.S. and Colombia. And obviously, Summer's a great time to be in the U.S. Winter's a great time to be in Colombia. So it varies every year. But, you know, we got back uh, here about a week and a half ago, and we'll probably be here uh, until the spring. Awesome. And you're a bit of a double threat here. You're both an established writer of a bunch of great guidebooks and also an award-winning photographer. So right off the bat, I'm going to give you a hard question. What do you like better, writing or taking the pictures? 
Uh, that's actually an easy question. Uh, for me, it's taking the photos. Uh, you know, photography is just something that uh, came really naturally to me. Um, I was always interested in, in art growing up as a kid. And uh, it's just something that that I do and, you know, I sort of understand it, it's just sort of a reflex almost. Whereas writing uh, is always something that seems to be work. You know, it's sort of, it's, it's really a craft and uh, it takes a lot to to write well and you have to rewrite and rewrite and rewrite. Um, it's incredibly rewarding when you do something good. Uh, there's no better feeling, but uh, definitely prefer uh, the photography. All right, good to know. I, I'm with you, man. The writing... I, I'm always super, yeah, proud when I get something out, whether it be a blog post or something written, because it is a struggle. Like, even though I like it, it's a struggle. And I think what's kind of neat too, James, is so many people want to do it, but never do because it is that struggle, right? Like, oh, I've got this book in my head, or I've always wanted to start a blog. And then they don't because they know that inherently writing can be really, really difficult. Oh, yeah. And even, you know, I've read a lot of stuff by famous writers about the writing process and even some of the top names you can think of. It's even painful for them after doing it for decades. So it's just a complicated thing. Uh, but like I said, it's it's really rewarding. And especially when, uh, you know, my words help people travel better. Yeah. And we're going to talk. Let's, let's dive into that because everything you do, whether it be the photography or the writing, is based around this love of travel and this idea that you want to help people get out there, see more, understand more, you know, have a better experience. Where did the love of travel for you come from? Well, you know, I, I really have to say a lot of it came from my parents. My parents were and continue to be uh, global travelers. They love it. You know, when I was growing up uh, in a small town in Maine in the 1980s, we did a lot of crazy trips. Uh, we went to Africa. My dad did some volunteer work there and brought the family, you know, went to Egypt, went to Europe. Now that's a lot more common. Back then, I mean, that was really kind of crazy, uh, especially going to Africa. I mean, that was like, you know, the end of the world. Uh, this is before, you know, cell phones, the internet, but I really think those early experiences, you know, gave me this incredible perspective on the world. And I think that combined with being from a very small town, it just made me want to explore. It made me want to go out and, and see what was out there. I, to this day, it fascinates me. It's always interesting. Um, and it's something that I love continuing to do. Do you, where do you think the love of travel for your parents came from? And maybe you know, because, you know, when I ask this question, we have about half the guests say, hey, it really comes from my parents or, I, or, or someone when they were growing up. Maybe it's grandparents or aunts and uncles, what have you. But, hey, they, they, they traveled a lot growing up, especially international, so it was bred into them a bit. And then half the people, and myself included in that, I traveled, but not much. It was all, you know, hey, we're going down to Florida, we're doing this. And I, I kind of found it on my own and, and bit myself with the travel bug versus having it happen to me as a kid. What about your parents? Were they like, was, did that get passed down from their parents? Or do you know where that came from for them? Because that, that's crazy taking your kid to Africa in, in the 80s, right? Like that's not yeah. something that really happens for most people. No, it's not normal. And there were a lot of people that questioned my father's sanity at the sure, time. Sure. Uh, you know, my father, he definitely did some travel. I remember he he tells the story about going to Mexico City when he was a uh, when he was a boy with his family and the thing that he couldn't get over was that his taxi driver was named Jesus. And I don't know, maybe that's where it started for him, you know, Jesus the taxi driver. Some people have an inherent curiosity about the way things are, the way the world works. You know, they really want to know more. And I think that if that's sort of your personality type and whether that can be inherited or learned, you know, I don't know, probably a little bit of both. But I think those are the, the, the things that really kindle the passion for travel. Um, and maybe there's people that they have it, but they just haven't been on a trip somewhere where, you know, that sort of, you know, it, it lights a spark. In the end, for me, travel is all about learning um, and learning comes from curiosity. So I really think that that's probably the root. When you first started out then, so like you're a kid, you're traveling around and then you, you went to school and then you went to university. During that time period, was there ever a thought that travel would just play a secondary role? Like, hey, I'm going to get a regular job. And of course, you're going to travel, but you're going to take vacations versus now, you know, the life that you have. Hey, you're bopping between Colombia and the US. You know, you're able to be location independent. Where like was that on your radar and kind of a goal from the from the get-go, or did you have to go through some terrible maybe times at jobs and things like that to actually come out on the other side? So it was incredibly haphazard. Uh, I did not think that my future lay in 
travel writing, photography. Um, yeah, I was an engineering major. Um, you know, I studied engineering in college. I always expected, you know, I'd, I'd get a regular job and, you know, be working for, for the man. Maybe I think I had a, a bit of an independent streak where I thought, you know, well, eventually it'd be great to, to have my own business. You know, that would be uh, a really interesting thing to do. I, I just kind of fell into it. Um, when I graduated from, from college, it was 1999. And I went on a trip with my dad to Hawaii, actually. Uh, we went to Hawaii. There was a guidebook that we picked up there that had been clearly self-published by some locals. And it was like the guide to Hawaii. It still is the guide to Hawaii. I mean, it's like the best-selling guide. And it's not from a big corporate publisher. It's just some people that did it independently. And looking through it, I was like, wow, that's, that's incredible. That's amazing that these people did this. And I realized that there was a national park right where I grew up in Maine, Acadia National Park. And when I started looking into it, I realized there wasn't a real great guide to Acadia. And uh, so after I graduated college, I you know, said to myself, well, you know, I'm going to have to get a real job pretty soon and um, probably not going to like it. It's going to be an abrupt shift from you know, the college university life. Uh, I'm just going to take a few months and I'm going to do my own thing. And, you know, I think I'll, I'll, I'll attempt to write, you know, a small guidebook uh, to Acadia. And I was envisioning like almost like a pamphlet, you know, right. almost like something, that, you know. <laughs> Naivety is bliss, my friend. <laughs> yeah. And it wound up snowballing into a, a full book with photos. And, you know, that's when I really got involved with photography. And uh, it came out. Uh, it became the best-selling guide to Acadia. It was sort of this crazy thing where... You know, halfway through the project, I didn't even know what I got myself into. Uh, but it was sort of when I realized how much work was ahead, I realized it was too late to quit. So I had to keep going. Had I known how much work it would have been, I probably would never have started. But the results were great. People loved it. You know, uh, it was the best selling book. Wasn't, you know, enough to, to really live on, like live comfortably. But I thought, you know, wow, this is incredible. You know, maybe, maybe there's something here. Maybe I could do this someplace else. Uh, and so I moved out to California. Uh, I did a guidebook to Joshua Tree National Park, um, had the same result with that. And I've essentially been doing doing it ever since. So uh, totally unexpected, but I'm really happy it turned out the way it did. Yeah, I want to talk about that process that uh, of the first guidebook. And then obviously, subsequent guidebooks, I'm sure, followed a similar process, except you actually knew what it would be a little more, a little more, a little more each time. When you were doing the Katie one, you thought, all right, it's going to be a pamphlet. And then you start realizing, I want to, there's a lot more I want to say. There's, there's pictures I can put in here. What, like, A, how long did that take? And then what did the process look like for getting it to something that was then self-published? Well, you know, the, uh, <laughs> as I said, the process was completely haphazard. I just had a sort of general idea. And it took a year to put out that first book. And it was really a crash course in doing multiple things at once, you know, it was doing the writing, doing the photography, uh, learning about self-publishing, uh, you know, at, at the time, desktop publishing was sort of at a point where, you know, one person could sit down and put it all together, but you had to learn the software, you know, there were, there were no YouTube training videos back then. There was no YouTube back then it was really a struggle to figure it all out. I think my engineering background actually really came in handy because I was comfortable with, with software and technology and sort of, you know, learning things on my own, but it was really a crash course. Uh, I got the product out. It's the type of thing that I look at it today and I sort of cringe. I, I see all the, the errors that I made. Uh, but it was good enough at the time, you know, that sort of set the template for, for the future projects. And really, what I try to do from the very beginning is say, what kind of guidebook would I like to see? Like as a consumer, what, what are the things that I want to see in a guidebook to Acadia National Park? And the things that I want to see, I wanted to see photos because photos really help you plan a trip. They really, you know, if you want to choose which hiking trail you want to go on, uh, if there are some photos and if they're in, in color, that can give you a much better sense of what the hike looks like than just a written description. I knew I wanted to have a lot of great background information about the geology, about the wildlife, about the history. You know, these are these are things that I'm fascinated in. This is why I love to travel. I love to learn. And so many of the guidebooks that were out there at the time and still to this day, really sort of it's like, you know, here's a list of 30 hotels. 
here's a bunch of restaurants. It, you know, it was really just sort of the basics of the necessities of staying alive while you travel rather than the joys of learning. And I, you know, I wanted to learn. So really, I just took all these things that I thought I really would like to see in a guidebook and I put them all together and uh, other people, uh, you know, they agreed. They uh, they bought the book and they felt the same way. And it's it's the philosophy that still, you know, is true to my guidebooks to this day. Like, what did it look like and what was or if there was a breaking point between, okay, getting it out, because that's one thing, obviously a huge mission to finish a guidebook, get something that that is published. But then the second part, or maybe even and probably even the more time intensive and and I wouldn't even say the second half because it takes it takes up more time is the marketing or or just getting people to know about it because so how what did that look like because that that's a tough thing I know a lot of people would struggle with the first part but then they might even get to a point where they could publish something and now all of a sudden all right well who's gonna find this and how are people gonna find it because like you said this was pre I mean internet was there but pre kind of internet marketing and stuff like that where did people find your book was there a big break that you found or, or something like that and I had a website back then people were amazed oh you have a website that's incredible you know that's amazing the internet was there but it wasn't what it is today that said there were alternate you know ways that people got their information they got their information through newspapers through magazines um, you know that and those really moved markets back then. I mean, the phone book, that was huge for businesses. People used to pay tons of money to be in the phone book, you know? So it was, the, the there was marketing there. Um, it was just different than it is today. Uh, a lot more analog. And, you know, what I did, I, I was really fortunate because Acadia National Park is located on an island off the coast of Maine, which means that all of your customers, your potential customers, are going to end up on an island. There is an enclosed space where they are going to go to. And what I did, you know, when I got the books, um, I put them in the back of my truck. I drove around to every store that I could possibly find, whether it was a gas station or a bookstore or, you know, convenience store. And I just walked in, you know, I'm, I'm 21 years old. And I said, hey, I have this book. I'm a local guy. You know, I grew up uh, right nearby. I did this book. Would you like to carry it? Honestly, I think a lot of people took pity on me. They were like, oh, this, you know, this, this young guy, you know, like, I don't know if his book's any good, but he seems like, you know, he's earnest and he's into it. And, you know, they're small business owners, so they understand like the problems that can come with and the challenges that come with having a small business. So a lot of them were like, yeah, give me five copies, you know, and I think they thought I'll buy five copies uh, and they'll sit here on the shelf all summer um, but you know, I'm helping this young guy out who's, you know, trying to do his thing. And, you know, within about a week I was getting phone calls from everywhere saying, Hey, we'd like another five copies. Um, you know, we'd like some 10 copies. And so it, it was a little bit easier because like I said, it was a, it was a concentrated geographic area. Um, people at that point, uh, were still sort of, you know, picking up stuff like that, getting their information when they got to a place as opposed to researching it beforehand. Um, and so that all that that really helped out as far as getting everything launched. What then made you decide to move on to Joshua Tree? Had you been out there before and you thought, all right, well, this is my, you know, second favorite national park, so I'm going to go here? Or was there some other thing in your head where you thought, all right, people are coming here, they, they have to cut, like, same thing, they have to come through a certain area, they're not getting away from me, you know, I'm going to get into this guidebook of their hands. You know, more than anything else, again, remember, I thought this Acadia book was going to be a one-time thing, and then I was going to have to get a job, right? Um, and I wanted to move out to California. Um, I'd spent my whole life growing up in small towns in New England and, you know, Southern California was about the most exotic place that you could go to as far away from home as possible. And so I moved out there and Joshua Tree, uh, is basically the, you know, the national park in, in Southern California. It was a real challenge because you're dealing with a completely different landscape. I mean, you know, Acadia is on the coast. It gets, you know, it's lush and green. Joshua Tree's in the desert in Southern California. Uh, I didn't, you know, know the place at all. I went there and, you know, was sort of had to learn as I as I went. Whereas with Acadia, I spent my whole life growing up there. I knew it like the back of my hand. Uh, Joshua Tree was was a very different challenge, but it was really because I wanted to live in Southern California, and Joshua Tree was there. 
Um, and I decided to, to give it a shot. But it was great because going to such a different environment, going to such a different place with a new set of challenges allowed me to sort of build my skill set and really look at the process in a different way. Instead of knowing everything in advance, I had to learn everything. And I had to learn about, you know, okay, I got to study up on the ecology of the deserts, uh, that kind of thing. So again, that was just sort of a random thing, but it worked out well in the end. And, uh, you know, to this day, my guidebook to Joshua Tree is the best-selling guidebook to Joshua Tree. So still going strong. Does one guidebook outperform all the others? Is it seasonal or do you have one that like, hey, this is far and away the most popular one out of all the ones that you've written? You know, it's interesting. It sort of varies from year to year. And I don't know why that is, but it seems like some years, you know, all of a sudden everybody wants to go to Acadia uh, and other years everybody wants to go to Yosemite. It just kind of varies. You know, they, they all sell within a certain range, but it sort of it definitely fluctuates from year to year. What was the biggest difference between, you kind of touched on this, like having to learn, that was the biggest difference between Acadia and Joshua Tree, but was there something with the process that you did different? Like, were you able to sit there and say, oh man, I turned this around a lot quicker or, hey, now I kind of know the marketing and here's what I'm going to do. What were the biggest differences between that first guidebook and that second? Uh, you know, it was it was just a new set of challenges. So the things that I had sort of learned and become, become comfortable with on the first one, it was like, oh, I got this. This is going to be easy. I know how to edit photos now. You know, I know uh, how to organize information. But there just there's always new things, you know. Um, the desert's a very different place than, you know, uh, coastal New England. And uh, as I continued to work on my craft, you know, becoming a better writer, uh, becoming a better photographer – there's always more to learn. And I, I think this is going to be true for the rest of my life. Um, you, you can always find uh, sort of places where you can improve, places where you can make yourself better. Um, and they might be sort of incrementally smaller changes, but uh, in some ways that makes them even more difficult. So it really took, you know, about four or five guides until I felt I had a real handle on the whole process from, you know, when I, when I go into a place, okay, what do I need? You know, what's the checklist of things? What do I focus on first? What do I focus on second? Um, it's been a continual learning process. Yeah, let's walk through that timeline because I'm fascinated here of, of what it looks like. We're, let's walk through from the beginning. Acadia was what year? And then just, yeah, tell us what year and then, and then when those guidebooks went out and then we can go back and dive into specific ones. Yeah, so Acadia came out, the first edition came out in 2000. Uh, Josh Tree came out in 2003. Uh, Grand Canyon in 2005, Yosemite in 2007. Uh, and then at that point, I made a real departure from national parks. I moved down to Costa Rica. Uh, we can get into all that. And that wound up being a real big challenge. Uh, and that came out in 2015, uh, 2013 was the first edition. Um, so that's sort of the rough timeline. All right. Of, so you were, uh, you were kind of flying through, not flying, but like two years, two years, two years oh, wait, now I'm doing a country. This is going to take a little while longer. When, and I and I want to get into that because that's obviously then a whole nother challenge, but when did you in your head say, all right, this is this is what I'm doing now. I am a, I'm a guidebook writer. I'm a photographer. I'm a travel writer. When did you actually feel comfortable saying, this is me? Not, oh, this is me right now, but in the back of your head, you thought you were going to go back to engineering or something else. Yeah. Well, and that was constantly in the back of my head the whole time. You know, uh, for the first year or two, it's it's fun. You're like, oh, I can get a job. You start getting into it and, you know, your friends have got jobs. They're sort of moving along in, your, in their careers and you're thinking, this doesn't work out. You know, what? how am I going to switch gears here? But it was really, I know the exact moment that it happened. Uh, after I came out with the Grand Canyon Guide, which was my third guide, that guide won several uh, National Guidebook Awards. Won the Benjamin Franklin Award for small publishers for the best travel guidebook, uh, the Independent Publisher Award. And really at that moment, I knew, okay, I, I've got something going here. This is something that people are responding to. You know, I'm, I'm going all in. I still felt like I was sort of building things up and I wasn't, you know, I hadn't, hadn't arrived. But it was clear that all the momentum was building and I had a good thing going and this wasn't just a one-off hit. So that, that was really when I felt like, okay, I'm going all in. And what was it about the national parks that captured your attention? Was it because you like traveling to them or did you think, all right, I also have a, a 
a bit of a formula with I've done guidebooks to national parks, so I want to slot myself in as the national park guidebook guy. Yeah, well, it was a combination of things. One, I absolutely love national parks. I mean, spending time outdoors, going hiking, spending time in nature. Um, I, it's something that I've always loved. As the world has become progressively more digital, I love it even more because it's such an amazing opportunity to disconnect and sort of, you know, let, let go and, and gather yourself and reflect. Um, so it's, it's, it's always been a passion of mine. Uh, it, it was a combination of that looking at what was available for national parks um, and seeing that there, you know, there really weren't the kind of guides that, that I wanted, that I was looking for. Um, a lot of them were made by big corporate publishers that they've got a template, whether it's a country, a city, you know, they slap the template on, send some people in there who, you know, they, they do an all right job. But I, you know, I, when you read the geology section, when you read the wildlife section, it's clear that there, it's not, something that they're intimately familiar with and really passionate about. And I am. And I think that really comes through in the writing. So, um, you know, it was a combination of, of things that I like and seeing the opportunity and yeah, having, having a good lifestyle going out and, and playing in national parks. How long did you feel that you had to spend in an area to, to be able to write a guidebook on it? Because like you mentioned, and Listen, everyone, there's different guidebooks for all types of people, but there are guidebooks that you read that you think, all right, someone knows this area very intimately and, and knows a lot. And then you read some and you're like, okay, someone came through and they're, they know a surface level, which might be more than me. So I'm thankful that there's something, but you also get the feeling that they haven't, they don't live there. They haven't spent a lot of time there. So for you, what was that balance of, all right, now I feel like I can write from it and really give someone a feeling for this place? Unfortunate answer is it depends. Uh, but really, you know, if you're, if it's a small park um, that you can, you know, really get to know, I, I'm going to say fairly quickly. And by fairly quickly, I mean, you know, talking about four months, five months, coming back throughout the different seasons, because places change a lot between summer and winter. And you got to know, okay, what's it like when I'm visiting in the winter? What's it like when I'm visiting in the summer? You know, that's a lot different from going to, say, Costa Rica, which even though it's a small country, it's still a big country uh, compared to a national park. And the nuance and the culture and the language and all the, the complexities that come with that, that's why that was a five-year project as opposed to a lot of these national parks being a two-year project. Were there times with the Costa Rica thing that you thought, Okay, I'm just going to go back to the U.S. and find another national park because this is uh, too much. Like, I've bitten off Constantly. too much. Okay. Constantly. It, I mean, it was in, in a lot of ways, it was similar to my first guidebook where by the time I realized what I had gotten myself into, it was too late to quit. There was no going back. And you just had to push forward. Um, it was enormous complexity. I didn't speak Spanish when I arrived. Um, I speak Spanish now. But that was a whole process. Going through the culture shock, adapting to the culture, it, it's just a different style of life. And really, nothing could prepare me for it. You know, no amount of sort of academic studying in a university, you know, uh, reading about things. I mean, you have to go there and just experience it to really get uh, a sense of it and a flavor for it. In some ways, coming in as an outsider is very helpful because you can notice things that other people um, you know, people that have been living there their whole life don't, you know, that, that, that can definitely work to your advantage. Um, and it was, it was a, it was a constant, you know, funny discussion that I always had with my Costa Rican friends, you know, where I'd bring something up. I'm like, what do you guys think about this? And they would just look at me like I was crazy. They had never considered it because it was just always the way it was. And we'd have really interesting discussions about, well, you know, I came at this from a, a completely different angle, um, than you guys are coming in. I think we both learned a lot through that process and that really helped me work through, okay, what's my perception of things? What am I learning about this place and how can I then distill that and boil it down into interesting, good travel information that can help travelers? You know, how can, uh, this interesting cultural quirk that I've stumbled upon help a traveler not make a fool of themselves or just simply, you know, get along better in a, in a foreign land. Um, you know, so really, again, uh, stepping in way over my head, 
but that's sometimes the way you learn. That's right. What made you decide on Costa Rica? Why why'd you venture down there? So it was interesting. Uh, in 2006, um, the Winter Olympics were in Torino, Italy, and I got hired to go and photograph uh, the Winter Olympics uh, for Yahoo, which had just purchased a little photo sharing site called Flickr. Uh, Flickr was like, you know, sort of pre-Instagram. And I think Yahoo had bought it for like 20 million bucks and everyone was saying, this is outrageous tech bubble, you know, like that's that's an enormous amount of money. Um, Just to give, you know, listeners out there an idea of uh, how distant in the past 2006 was. So they had just uh, bought Flickr. They wanted to promote it. Um, a friend of mine was actually on the U S ski team and he was, he had hurt his leg and he was writing articles, uh, for Yahoo. So he sort of brought me in, went over there, spent a month, uh, in the Italian Alps, which was amazing. But by the end of it, I mean, you're talking, you know, I'm out there shivering, you know, in the cold, taking photos every day for a month. And right after that, another friend of mine had invited me down to Costa Rica where his parents had moved to, they were expats. They lived down there. They ran a, a nice little boutique hotel. And he said, hey, we're, you know, going down there. You should come. I said, great. You know, so after a month of being, you know, in uh, in the mountains and in, in, the, in the winter, went down to Costa Rica and just had an absolute blast. I mean, it just blew me away. The natural beauty, the wildlife, the friendliness of the people. And I just remember, you know, I was sort of lying in the ocean, bobbing up and down, you know, looking at the palm trees. And I was just thinking, how can I get back here? What can I do to get back here? Could I write a guide to this place? Does this place need another guide? And ultimately, when I looked at what was out there and started thinking about it, I said, you know what, I'm going to give it a shot. And <laughs> five years later, you wrote a yeah. guidebook. Now, oh, man. talking about that, like the process to me seems so overwhelming, especially with a country, but, but even just, uh, I don't say just, but even a national park. Do you go and give yourself an amount of time where you just go and experience it. You say, I'm not going to write anything. I'm not going to take any photographs. I'm not going to jot anything down. I'm going to come here and be here and kind of, you know, in a woo-woo way, like let it wash over me and let me just experience this place first. Is there, do you do that and then start the process of like cataloging, documenting and all that? Or do you just say, no, like you're scribbling notes from day one? I would say every time I try to do that and it lasts about maybe half a day and I just can't help myself. I start noticing things. I start seeing great shots and I just can't sit there and and do nothing. When I, when I see, you know, an amazing shot lining up or when I see, you know, really interesting travel tip uh, or, or a great piece of information, I have to write it down. So you're like from the jump, you're like, all right, whatever. I, anything I hear, I don't even know if it's going to make it in. Who knows? But you're you're documenting right right away. I try to just take it in. I honestly do every time I try, but it's just I can't help it. It's like it's a reflex. Like you know, I just can't sit there. I, I have to. I have to. You know, capture it. You're like me, man. I try to travel slow, but then I find myself in an area and I think. Well, I, you know, I'm so close to here. When am I going to be back? And all of a sudden, there's five things in seven days versus, oh, we rented an apartment for three months. You know, um, I'm with you. I, I get it. You, that urge is is too much. I think that's the curiosity, the wanderlust, and and the idea that you're there and you don't want to miss something. And so, yeah, it's it's kind of hard to step back. I I think being a guidebook author is probably a lot of people's dreams, or at least until they start doing it. I know. For example, when I was, you know, we're starting our website and we're like, oh, well, we're going to write about destinations because we've experienced it in, a, in our way and I want other people to experience it that way. And, you know, to this day, we still write like little destination posts and stuff like that. So I think that's most travelers or, or, or a lot of travelers. What are things that people don't know about the process of actually sitting down and writing a full on guidebook? And to be clear, I do think I have a dream job. Uh, I, I really do love it. But people always focus on the dream and they forget about the job. And, you know, a job is a job because there's stuff that you have to do that you don't necessarily want to do. Traveling around is the fun part. That's that's the part that's that's the dream. You're going around, you're experiencing things. Um, and when I run into people, you know, as I'm traveling and, you know, start chatting and, you know, I tell them what I do. 
they say, ah, this is incredible. Like they're on vacation. They don't have any responsibilities. They say, wow, you do this all the time. That's incredible. What they don't see is the 75% of the time that I'm sitting in front of my computer, like just about everybody else, putting everything together, editing the photos, working on the writing, working on the organization, uh, working on the business side of things, working on the promotional side of things. These are all vital parts of the job, and that is most of the job. Travel is really, you know, sort of the really fun fractional part, but sitting down and really getting it done. And like I said, I enjoy it, but there's definitely days when it doesn't come easy, you know, when you're writing um, and it's just not flowing and you just have to power through it. And you can't just constantly procrastinate and send it aside because then it's never going to get done. You know, like any job, if you're a graphic designer, you know, there's going to be days where, when you're stuck in a rut um, and you just have to power through it like everybody else. You know, the uh, one of the trickiest things is probably self-motivation, um, especially if you're coming from a, a job where, you know, you're used to having a boss, you're used to showing up, um, you got to do it, otherwise you're going to get fired. When you're working for yourself, you, you have to look in the mirror and be your own worst boss. And one of the hardest things is a lot of people don't understand that uh, you're not self, you're not unemployed, you're self-employed. You know, so if they got the day off, they're going to be calling you off. They want to do stuff. They want to, you know, go for a hike. They want to go in the movies. Uh, and it's like, no, I can't do this. Like, I'm not unemployed. I'm self-employed. And, you know, that is sort of one of the hardest things is the your friends and family, the people that, that know you and love you, um, sort of not uh, sort of taking, take, maybe taking a little offense when you don't, you know, immediately respond to wanting to do something fun because, you know, it's like you just can't take off whenever you want. You got to get stuff done. Yeah, I'm smiling so big over here because for the first two years, I think that was my plight. I, I and and I also gave into it because I wanted to It'd be like, oh, you want to go to lunch? I've got the day off, and you're sitting like, oh yeah, this is why I work for myself. I'm gonna give myself this treat, and then it's four days a week and you realize, hey, whenever I come home from lunch with anyone, I'm not doing anything because I'm ready a for a nap or I've lost that flow. And so likewise, man, it took a long time for me to have to sit there on on in my own head, but also to other people to say, hey, I like if I was at an office job and you called me up and asked me to go to lunch, I would probably be able to do it once a month, right? Well, just imagine that's where I am, right? And so, and I had to do that and set limits. And I think that that is something that is an ever, like an ever changing battle and, and a battle we will always fight because you and I both, we like to be out there. We like to do stuff. We like to be around people. We like to, you know, we're curious. That's why we like to travel. And so kind of dialing that in and saying, yeah, you can do that, but not right now. Definitely something that I, I think I'm improving at, but never, I mean, it's never going to be completely there where I'm a hermit and say, nope, only working. And I think probably sounds similar for you. Yeah. And I think, you know, it depends on your personality. Um, you know, my brother, uh, you know, he works at a tech company in San Francisco and he wouldn't have it any other way. I, he's very comfortable with that. He loves the stability. He loves the regularity of it. Um, I have a different temperament. You know, I, I like it when things are sort of a little bit all over the place. Um, but at the same time, I'm also kind of a glutton for punishment. So I don't mind being my own worst boss. Uh, so, so much of it just depends on your personality type, but I've been really fortunate that I found something, uh, that I think complements my, my personality very well. Yeah. And um, we're going to chat on kind of some of your travel favorites in just a second. I wanted to give you a term. I, you, Listeners can't see it, but on my shirt, I'm wearing it right now as we're talking. We have a phrase called, I tackled the buffalo. And exactly what you were talking about when you have to slog through that, hey, I I'm sitting in front of my computer. This is the unsexy part of my business or, or the part that's hard for me. We call it tackling the buffalo. And so likewise, people say, hey, this is amazing. You get to do whatever you want. And you're like, every single person at some point has to tackle the buffalo. Never is their job something that they always want to do. And so, yeah, just slogging through and getting through on the other side, I think, can be one of those amazing parts of a job in its own way because you say, hey, I know I didn't really want to do this. Of course, we wanted to go out and travel and take the photos and do that. But I know I didn't want to sit down and write 5,000 words today. But I did. And then you get to like kind of revel on that. So you tackle the buffalo a lot, James. Sounds pretty awesome. <laughs> I try. I try and tackle that buffalo. <laughs> I want to I want to chat a little bit about your travels and, and some of your favorite places as well. What does your travel lifestyle look like? Because you talked about going to Colombia and spending time in the U.S. and Colombia. So a few questions thrown together here. 
one, when you're in the U.S., is there a home base? Is there a place you usually go? And then also, how often are you getting out and traveling to new places versus, hey, I got to go back to Grand Canyon or Acadia or down to Costa Rica to obviously constantly be updating your knowledge of the places that you have guidebooks for? Yeah. Uh, well, as far as a home base, uh, Maine, uh, still where I return to, I still have family and friends there, you know, kids I went to kindergarten with still really good friends of mine. Uh, that's always going to be sort of, you know, my home. Um, obviously when I'm there, I go to Acadia a lot for pleasure and for business, uh, travel around to the parks, um, you know, quite a bit, um, you know, try to update them, uh, about every two years. So really constantly going out there. But on top of that, you know, always want to visit new places. And it, it's two different modes of travel, right? There's going back to the same place that you know so well. And there is this sort of magical thing about returning over and over again to a place and really noticing the subtleties and and over the course of, you know, your life, over the course of decades, like getting to know it that intimately, that's really, really special. At the same time, there's the other mode of travel, which is going someplace completely new, which is a completely different set of stimuli. And I always try to do that too. So I always trying to, you know, go someplace, um, whether in the U S or internationally once or twice a year, uh, I'm fortunate. I get hired to photograph, uh, trips, you know, uh, there's adventure companies that send me out, to, you know, photograph tracks or rafting trips or that kind of thing. So often I can sort of check off that box, you know, where it's like both work and pleasure at the same time nice. and, and going to a new place. Uh, which is a great way to travel for me too, because I really like, you know, uh, having that challenge of, okay, got to get great photos or got to, got to write something good about this place. Um, but really, yeah, those two modes of travel and, and, uh, and experiencing both, I think, uh, sort of rounds things out nicely. And to be honest, you know, in the age of Instagram, I do think there is this sort of push to constantly be, you know, going to new places and new, 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 and something different. And, and everything. And I, I really think people should sometimes slow down and, and find these places that they really love and go to again and again. And it doesn't have to be some exotic destination. You know, you can discover a lot about places in your own backyard that are remarkable. And if you spend more time there, um, they're going to get better and better. Um, and a lot of these places are really overlooked because everyone's going for that over the top, you know, wow factor. Um, but the older I've gotten, the more I've traveled, the more I've come to appreciate um, sort of the subtleties of, of familiar places. What are a few of those places for you, some of just the highlights in your life, whether they be places you've been to once or those places that you're like, I'm coming back here because I, I just love it. Like, I don't why? Why wouldn't I continue to come here? Yeah, I, I would say with every national park, I feel that way. The more I I spend time in each one, the more I understand how remarkable they truly are. Um, you know, the more I, I go on hikes, you know, that I've been on, you know, uh, multiple times, maybe even a dozen or more times, you just start to notice new things. You start to see it in a different light and you start to appreciate, wow, you know, uh, the, what, what makes this place beautiful, despite all the other places that I've traveled to is really singular and unique here. Um, and I think that that helps a lot with sort of putting things into perspective, especially, you know, as a guidebook writer, understanding those things that really make places unique. Um, that's why you travel. You want to see someplace different. You, you want to experience something place different. Um, and with every single national park, I have felt that, um, do you, and, do you have a favorite or, or a few favorites? I know it's like, it's like asking people to pick their favorite kid, but I'm going to keep pressing on this. Are there some that you just say? Like, let's say someone said, I can only visit five national parks, James. Like, for whatever reason, what would you say? All right, here, 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 and here. Well, that's an easy one. I would say all of my guidebooks. There you uh, go. You've, you got it, you've got five, right? So, there, so exactly. yeah, there we go. All right. But really, uh, for me, and this is, again, a product of where I was born and raised and, you know, how I grew up, Acadia is always going to be my favorite national park. Um, but that's because I have so much personal history there. You know, I worked in restaurants outside the park when I was in high school and college. You know, I grew up going on hikes with my mom and dad. Uh, no other place is going to replicate those experiences. So for me, I'm completely biased. Acadia is my favorite national park. That said, I think that the most incredible experience you can have in any national park is a rafting trip through Grand Canyon. Um, I, I've never done another adventure that, that compares to that. It's just out of this world. Every time I go on one, I think, I can't believe that this exists in America. This feels like something that, 
you know, could only be in the Himalaya, you know, or could only be in, in some exotic destination on the other end of the world, but it's right here in the United States. Uh, that's incredible. If you're looking for backpacking and hiking, really hard to beat Yosemite. Um, it is just a wonderland of incredible hikes and backpacks. So again, each park has their own kind of special, unique thing. Um, but going back to your original question, if I had to pick, it would be Acadia. Do you have one outside of Acadia that you think gets overlooked a bit? Because I, and I'll give you an example of this. I was going through the Badlands a couple months ago and I just thought, like, I know this is here and I had been to it once before as like a 15 year old and, and, you know, actually didn't, like I said to my buddy, oh yeah, it was cool. But then we went back and I was like, whoa, whoa, this is way better than, than the first time I was here. And I just thought it's crazy to me that this doesn't get more publicity or more visitors because I, I put on par with some of the best places I had been when it comes to national parks. Do you do you have one that you think this is it it outshines kind of the popularity that it might, you know, it might have. It probably deserves a little more. Yeah. So I used to say Zion National Park uh in Utah. That uh <laughs> and I started saying that about fifteen years ago. Uh, so you're the one who started this trend. It, it, it was, I, I blame Instagram, but uh, it, it, you know now it's now the third most visited. As of 2017, it's the third most visited national park in the United States. Um, I'm actually working on a new book to Zion uh, as we speak uh, that'll come out next spring. Um, but really, for a long time, and you know, I was just hanging out with somebody who's from, you know, he, he's a sort of. <laughs> a descendant of one of the original pioneer families that settled uh, Springdale, the, the town outside of Zion. And he was telling me, you know, when I was growing up as a kid in the 1960s, uh, Zion was the sort of park that nobody knew where it was and, you know, what was not nearly as famous as other places. He's like, but it was ours. In Utah, it was, it was ours. You know, it was, it was our park that nobody else cared about or, or loved. And now it's just completely flipped. Everybody's discovered that it's this wonderland of outdoor adventure. Um, now, if I was going to say Yeah, what's now, the next well, one? When we talk 10 years from now, what's, what's going to be the next one? So it's interesting. You know, a park that came to my attention recently was uh, North Cascades in Washington. And it's about three hours from Seattle. And it gets, I think it's something like under 30,000 visitors a year. Now, remember, the big national parks get, you know, two, three million visitors a year. Um, that's because North Cascades, you know, to access it, you really got to go on foot. You got to backpack. Um, there's sort of a level of difficulty uh, to get there. But the landscapes are just stunning. Um, and this really, you know, that plays into and I don't want to say that that's the only one. I think the Channel Islands are incredible and they're off the coast of Southern California, you know, the most populous, one of the most populous areas in the United States. And we've got the Galapagos of North America right offshore. And for some reason, everybody ignores it. Um, you know, uh, there, there's lots of places like that. Sequoia um, and Kings Canyon. Those are great national parks uh, on par with Yosemite. But Yosemite gets all the attention. Getting back to the North Cascades and, and, and you know, how you have to hike in. This is really key to visiting a lot of national parks. You know, everyone is aware that there are now, there's huge visitation at the top national parks. You know, top 10 are just packed. Um, it's becoming a bit of an issue in, in certain places, but really the way I look at it, it it's an over-concentration problem. Everybody's going to the same, you know, famous viewpoint or three famous viewpoints. Uh, and they're all sort of packing in, you know, everyone's, there's this one shot that everybody gets, you know, when the light is right. And, you know, there's 60 photographers all standing there and really, you know, get off the beaten path. Um, you know, I, in any national park, I don't care on, on Memorial day weekend on Labor day weekend, 4th of July, it is easy to escape the crowds and to have a wilderness experience and to go to, to see amazing places where you don't feel like you're stuck, stuck in a traffic jam. It just takes a little effort and it takes a little knowledge. Uh, and if you're willing to, you know, strap on a pair of hiking boots and actually, you know, go more than hundred feet from your car you can discover some incredible areas. It's just most people don't do it. And I think that's because most people don't know that that other option exists. Um, and that's what I love about my guidebooks is sort of, you know, showing people, hey, step off the, the you know, the beaten path, um, get out of the lines and go experience these amazing places 
for yourself. Um, and I, I sort of view this as a mission now where it's like, okay, the problem is an over-concentration. I'm helping disperse people into other areas that a lot of times are equally as beautiful, maybe even more beautiful. They're just not for whatever reason, they don't have that fame attached to them. You know, they don't have like the hashtag on Instagram. Um, and I, I think the more that people do discover these amazing places that they can go to, uh, the better experience and the more rewarding experience they're going to have. Yeah. As you were saying that, I was sitting there thinking, all right, well, how many more guidebooks does James have to write now? He's five deep. He talked about doing Zion here. What do we have for national parks? I don't know if you know the number. In well, it's, uh, as of the moment, it's, it's 59. Right. And, so uh, we need 54, 53 more guidebooks from you, man. How, yeah, how, how long you, do we got? Exactly. I got the rest of my life to work on this. <laughs> so uh, I plan on doing it until I die. Awesome. Awesome. I wanted to, to bring it back to, because uh, that was great. I'm glad we finally got you to pick some, because I, I do think you're, you're completely right. And I'm guilty as charged when it came to Yellowstone and just like driving through. We had one day. Okay, I did it. Took the pictures. And and that was cool, but felt, even as you were doing it, like, man, you know, people are spending all summer here. People are spending every summer of their life here, you know? There's so much more to see, and that goes for, for all the national parks and where you can get off the beaten path. So can't wait to grab some me, of the guidebooks. If, if I can interrupt for a second, yeah. I want to give you a great example from Yellowstone. Sure. Um, Old Faithful. Everybody knows Old Faithful, right? You go there in the summer, you know, uh, at, you know, one o'clock, two o'clock in the afternoon, and it is a madhouse. I mean, it is just packed with people. Uh, they're all standing there. It's hard to get a good view. You feel like you're in Times Square. It, there's a hike that goes up to an overlook that's not that far where you can get up above the crowds and have a bird's eye view looking down on Old Faithful. And yet everybody concentrates right around the geyser itself. Um, that's a great example of a way to sort of, you know, step outside, you know, step off the beaten path and go there. And the other thing is, you know, I was there a few years ago photographing, um, a kayaking trip in, uh, in Grand Teton and we popped over and we spent the night at, uh, the old faithful lodge. And, you know, I went out, I thought, you know, I wonder if I can get a picture of old faithful at night, you know, the stars, the light pollution is just nothing out there. And sometimes you can even see the Northern lights. It's like, I'm going to go out and set up my camera and, and see what I can get. And just being out there in the evening when everybody's gone home, I had Old Faithful to myself and I got incredible photos. And a lot of times it's also that it's thinking, okay, you know, go there in the evening, go there in the early morning, don't go there during the peak hours and you can still have these incredible experiences. Um, so really, again, it just takes a little bit of thinking outside the box and you can really escape all the shenanigans that come with, you know, summer in a national park. Yeah, I mean, I'll give you one. I, you know this, I'm sure. You literally wrote the guidebook on the Grand Canyon. But my brother told me this. I'd never been to the Grand Canyon. He goes, all right, go to a place called Shoshone Point. I'm like, all right, I, I, where is that? He's like, there's no sign. I, I asked a ranger. They pointed me here. They said they put no sign up on purpose. Cause, you know, whatever. Still super easy to find. And I... Like I drove to it and it's not even a hike. I mean, you walk maybe five minutes. All of a sudden, I'm at this viewpoint. Heather and I stayed there for three, four hours. And I think there were three other people who came. And this is, you know, peak tourist season. Mm -hmm. No one there. And that's a yeah. very simple one. Like just, again, got off, you know, maybe five minutes from all the real famous viewpoints. And there's no one there. And it's yeah. just as gorgeous. And I, But I wouldn't have known, right? Unless my brother... Asked a ranger, unless I probably picked up your guidebook. Um, but yeah, it's even at the most popular places, you can get off the beaten path a tiny bit and, and oh, have yeah. these amazing experiences. And, you know, uh, some of the popular viewpoints on Grand Canyon on the South Rim, you know, you go to the viewpoints and it, they are just packed with people. There are trails. There's a rim trail that goes along the rim. All you got to do is walk about, you know, 100 yards in either direction and you've got the place to yourself. Yeah, and, yeah. you know, it's sort of one of these things. It's, it's just it blows my mind how people, you know, they just sort of they see where people are and they feel like they got to go there and they feel like they got to, you know, do that. It's just sort of a herd mentality. Um, and what I encourage people is, you know, break out of that. It's fun. Yep. Yep. And I'm glad your guidebooks help people do that. That's awesome. What about the biggest travel mishap you've ever had in your life, whether it be at a national park, like we're talking about, or it be international, it doesn't matter. What What's one that comes to mind? So uh, it happened when I was six years old. 
and uh, I was this is when I had gone to Africa with my with my family. My dad was doing volunteer work, and we decided to uh, stop in Egypt on the way back home, see the pyramids, you know, see all that. And it was at the pyramids. Um, my brother ran across the street uh, to go. There were you know some camel rides or something like that. I started running after him, and I was sort of running in front of this van that was carrying us around. And, uh, I just stopped. It was one of these things in the back of my mind, you know, your teachers always tell you growing up, look both ways, stop and look both ways before crossing the street. And it was just a microsecond. I realized I need to stop and look both ways. And the next thing I knew, uh, I was on my back and I was looking up at a whole bunch of guys in, you know, wearing white robes and they were all like looking down at me and I had actually been hit by a car. Uh, a car came and, and hit my knees, uh, really just sort of scraped them. It was, it was really kind of a miracle, but it blew me back and knocked me out. Um, and I'm six years old. I'm looking up at all these guys, you know, wearing white robes. Uh, one guy was trying to take me to a uh, water source to splash water on my bleeding knees. Uh, our tour guide grabbed me by the other arm. They were sort of pulling me, you know, both ways. Tour guide took off his shoe and was threatening the other guy with a shoe. This is like something that they do in that part of the world. They love threatening with their shoe. And, uh, I, I just didn't know what to make of it. I was in shock. I literally, I was in a state of shock. Um, and that was definitely the, the biggest travel mishap I ever had. Uh, clearly, it did not kill my love of travel. It's not like after that, I stopped going anywhere. Maybe that's what ignited it. Maybe I thought, you know, hey, this is this is exciting. Look, look at what happens when you step outside of your comfort zone. That's right. Or maybe you're thinking, if I can survive get, uh, getting hit by a car in Egypt when I'm six years old, well, then what are you going to throw at me that I can't survive, right, at that point? Exactly. That's and it's funny because I was, I was actually back in Egypt. Uh, this is another great travel tip. I was there, uh, it was the five-year anniversary of the Zaheer Square Revolution, so I believe that was 2014, uh, maybe 2015, and it was right after the airliner had blown up from, you know, leaving Sharm el-Sheikh, there was, you know, reports of violence and, you know, all this stuff. I mean, tourism to Egypt just cratered, absolutely cratered. Um, I had a friend who was working for the State Department there uh, that I was planning on visiting, and I called up another friend of mine, uh, who's also an expat. And I said, Hey, I'm going to Egypt. Uh, do you want to go? I was like, I know it's a crazy time and nobody's going there, but do you want to go? And he said, yeah, let's do it. And we went there. It was incredible. Uh, it was about, you know, five months after the, the plane had blown up, no tourists anywhere, dirt cheap prices. I mean, we, the, the tours we took, everything we did. I mean, it was, it was incredibly cheap. It felt like going to a different Egypt. Um, and I, I specifically remember at one point we went into the Great Pyramid and there's a there's a chamber in the center that you can walk up to. And I remember going there when I was six years old, that day that I got hit by the car. And you had to wait in line and you sort of march up and you do one revolution around this little room and you go back down. When my friend and I went there, and I think it was 2015, we were the only two people in the room and we were there for 10 minutes by ourselves. And that to me just drove home the lesson, you know, these manias sort of take over. I mean, it's understandable. It's scary. You see bad, you know, things in the news and you say, I don't want to go there. But, you know, these sort of these, these stories flash up in the news where it's like, ah, oh, there's riots in Greece. You know, there's, there's terrorism in Egypt. There's all these things. Everybody just runs in the opposite direction. Um, often that's immediately after is the best time to go because that's when everybody's working on fixing the problem. And there's no tourists and over tourism is a problem just about everywhere now. Um, so my friend and I, you know, we always joked, we're like, you know, the next time that there's sort of a, you know, a, a disaster media flare up somewhere and everyone's running away, like that's when we got to go. That's the best time to go there. Yeah. And, you know, people here, especially in our news, right, if, if you're hearing about foreign countries, like, all right, there's this in Greece. Well, that might be in Greece in a part of Greece, right? I, I think, too, it, it just... It's so easy to say this country has issues, not, hey, this specific region of this country has issues, oh, but there's 85% of the country is fine or or could be fine. So I think that's exactly. another part of it is, yeah, you just hear one thing and, and all of a sudden I'm not going, which like for people like you and I is good because then you, yeah. you can capitalize on that. And yeah, say, it would right, be like somebody it. in Germany taking a look at the news right now and saying, oh, there's wildfires in the US, you know, in California. And saying, well, I'm not going to go to New York. Right. There's wildfires in the U.S. Right. You know, exactly. It, 
doesn't make any sense. And yet we do that all the time with, yep. with other countries. Yep. Yep. What else do you have coming up in the pipeline, either personally or professionally? Because you talked about the Zion Guide. So give us a little teaser on when that might be coming out. And what are your plans for the future then? Yeah. So the Zion Guide, uh, it should be coming out in the spring. I'm hoping uh, by June 1st, it'll be available. Um, really, I have just thrown myself into that project. I've been working on that you know, all year. Um, and I'm so excited about it. I, again, the more I learned about Zion, I, I got into canyoneering when I was there, um, which is essentially descending down slot canyons by rappelling, um, swimming, hiking, scrambling, whatever you can. Uh, slightly technical, but what's amazing is you can take uh, canyoneering courses uh, and outfitters outside the park, and within a day, if you're a good student and you learn, um, you can go on your own. You can do some of the easier canyons. Really just remarkable stuff. Um, some of the backpacks, I mean, overcrowding is certainly an issue in Zion now, but uh, the things I found, the places that you can go in that park to escape that, uh, there's a million tricks and tips and you know uh, ways to avoid all of that. So uh, I'm having a lot of fun working on that guide and I can't wait till it comes out. Uh, after that, really, uh, I just want to do more national parks, um, get as many as possible. Um, I love exploring them. There's still so many that I think are, are underrated that, that, uh, that could use a good guidebook with really good information. Um, and that's, that's my passion. That's my specialty. It's sort of what I've fallen into. And so, like I said, the rest of my life, that's what I, what I hope to keep doing. Nice. Nice. You'll keep doing the best job in the world. That's not a hard sell for you, right? <laughs> do you have a, do you have a hit list? Do you, are you saying like, have you planned out? All right. After Zion, my thought is I'm going to go for this or do, or is it totally open to, to kind of whims and maybe what you want to explore? Like after you get done the project, then you'll start thinking about it. Yeah. I mean, it's still pretty open. Um, you know, a lot depends on, you know, I'm still running a business, so, you know, I got to go to places like, you know, there are national parks, uh, that get, you know, there are national parks in Alaska that get under 10,000 visitors a year. They sound incredible to me. You know, you get dropped off at, you know, a helicopter and, you know, the helicopter comes and picks you up a week later. That sounds amazing to me, but I don't think that would be a good business decision. Right. Uh, hard hard to sell like, more than 10,000 copies of that guidebook, right? Right. Exactly. A year. Now, I would like to do that at some point. Like, that sounds great. Um, but uh, really, you know, focusing towards uh, a lot of the, the really popular parks, again, that I think have this over concentration problem. And really, you know, I'd love to start promoting some of the other parks that, you know, aren't kind of getting the love that that the, the more famous parks, you know, are. Because, again, a lot of these are located in people's backyards and they they might know, oh, it's there, but it's not Yellowstone, it's not Yosemite. But there's great stuff there, you know, so uh, really, really open to uh, a wide range of, of different places. Although, you know, Hawaii sounds great. Uh, Virgin Island National Park sounds great. Uh, there, there's a lot of I, I sense a, lot of great a, I sense a theme go. happening there. Have you been somewhere cold recently? Because it seems like you're like, all right, Acadia. Nope. Now I'm going to Joshua Tree. Okay, I was in the Italian Alps. All right, now I'm going to Costa Rica. My blood has absolutely thinned out, but I'll tell you this too. You know, when you when you haven't had experienced winter in a while and you come back to it, oh man, is it good? It is. You know, you again, you realize the things you sort of took for granted where you're thinking about, oh, winter is shoveling the driveway and winter is, you know, you know, bundling up in your your coat and being frozen solid. But it's also it's cross country skiing, it's snowshoeing, it's doing all these great things. Uh, So, I, you know, I would love to go to some of these parks where uh, where you can do a lot more of that. Yeah, I hope to spend enough time away from an East Coast winter that I start to feel the way that you're feeling. So I just got to get down to Columbia, make sure yeah. I'm down there for long enough, then come back and enjoy the winter wonderland. Come on down. Awesome. Thanks so much for joining me today and creating guides that give a real insider look at, at these amazing places and for kicking my butt now to get to Acadia even more because even though it's it's not really on my doorstep. We're talking, it's nine hours away, but I've been up close enough to it and still never been. So you kick my butt to go there. I will guarantee that I will wait till June 1st to go to Zion now. Not going to Zion until your guidebook comes out. So thank you so much. Remind people one more time, how can they get a hold of you and also the best way for them to grab the guidebooks if they're interested? Yeah, so uh, jameskaiser.com is my website. That's K-A-I-S-E-R. And that is sort of a great home base. You know, it's got links to my social profiles, uh, links to, to the books. Um, you can buy the books on Amazon, Barnes & Noble. Really encourage you to, to pick them up at your local independent bookseller. Um, and also, you know, uh, go into your local independent bookseller and say, 
hey, I'm looking for this guide by James Kaiser. Because a lot of times they, you know, I'm still trying to get the word out to, to independents. Um, and I'm an independent, you know, I'm not a big corporate publisher. Um, and so it's great when, when indies, you know, discover my books and they consistently wind up, you know, carrying them for years after they discover them. So go into your local independent bookstore, support them, ask for my guides. They can get a hold of it real quick. Um, and yeah, the, those are the best ways to, to see what I'm up to. Awesome. Thanks so much, James. Guys, we'll link everything in the show notes. We'll link up the guides. Again, you can get it at jameskaiser.com. Love that, though. Yeah, go into your local bookstore. If they don't have it, help James out. Like, Give a, give a little love to the uh, independent bookstore because it's going to help everyone. You're going to get the guidebook at your independent bookstore so they won't close. They're going to get to sell some great guidebooks, and James is going to be in another place. So win, win, win there. Um, thanks again, James. Really, really appreciate you uh, tuning in, hanging out with us from Columbia. I can't wait to get down there myself. Thank you. It was a pleasure, and I, I look forward to uh, talking again. Yeah, thank you, everyone, for tuning in today for your continued support that makes us the number one rated travel podcast out there. And of course, until next time, happy free travels. I'll show you Paris soon.